Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades. This is an extra episode. A prologue of what's been promised for a while for our Patreon subscribers. You see, this is the prologue for Anna Polyutkovskaya's A Russian Diary, our book one of all of the book series that we plan on doing. We'll be releasing this book and later on other books for our Patreon subscribers in full, chapter by chapter. Both because we do want to give something back to the nice people who keep us alive, and because this is one of the most important books in recent Russian history. It chronicles many important events in Putin's Russia and exposes it interestingly, especially knowing the fact that this journalist, Anna Politkovskaya, was essentially killed for what she did. Now, nobody knows if the government did it, but she was assassinated. By official version goes... Unknown organized crime authorities and her never and her crimes and the people who murdered her were were never found. Obviously, it's a heavy read for me. And uh, translating this book and working on this has also not been easy. So yeah, this this what what you hear today is like I said a prologue of this book, which is on our main feed. But for our Patreon supporters. Uh, the chapter one is out by now as well. Now, if you listen to this and uh, will find that this book might be interesting for you, all you have to do is to become our patron on patreon.com forward slash the eastern border. That's in uh, one word, the eastern border. Or just click on the Patreon button on our homepage, the eastern border, the LV. For literally any amount per episode. Or you can just send us an email asking for this book if you have donated to us via PayPal. Or you can just donate to us via PayPal and you'll also get access to the full audiobook as it's released. Well, at least do a couple of chapters until I forget about it and you'll have to mail me again. <laughs> Sorry about that. This um, audiobook thing is a lot of work for me and we're, we're saving up money right now to visit countries in the Caucasus and the Central Asia to acquire more material for future episodes, and um, this is somewhat of a thank you to all of those people out there who support us, who follow us, and uh, 
I hope you might become one of them as well, because this is my day job by this point, and you guys are keeping me alive. Of course, uh, like I said, this is just in addition to our regular episodes, and uh, this won't replace anything. Uh, Eastern Border is getting ready, and there will be another one of those this month, and PDRP, the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast, is active too. Oh, and the latest show of that should be out tomorrow. But yeah, this is a way of um, saying thank you to the people who support us, and uh, if you want the whole book, then, yeah, become our patron, donate us on PayPal, or just, or just email me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm sure we can figure something out. For now, listen to this prologue. And if you like it, well, consider becoming our patron. A Russian Diary A journalist's final account of life, corruption and death in Putin's Russia by Anna Politkovskaya Foreword by Scott Simon Anna Politkovskaya would have left Russia Remember that, as you read these journals. She was born in 1958 in New York, where her Ukrainian parents were Soviet diplomats at the United Nations. The United States Embassy in Moscow considered her a citizen. She was entitled to an American passport. With all of the resourcefulness that Anna Politkovskaya had relied on to survive in Chechnya and in Gushati, she might have pulled a scarf over her short, soft grey hair, doffed the simple oval glasses by which she was so easily identified, left her apartment building by a back door, met a friend to guide her, and gone to the US Embassy. Or she could have visited her sister, Yelena Kudimova, in London. By the way, Russian officials were glad to see her go, knowing that next to nothing she said or wrote outside of Russia would ever been heard or read there. And she could have just stayed. She could have flown to Berlin or New York to accept one more award for heroism. She could have gone to a conference on the Caucasus in Paris or Vienna told stirring stories of her indisputable courage to astounded students at Columbia, Stanford, or Iowa State, signed up with a think tank in Washington or Cambridge and never have to go back to Moscow. 
Anna Polyutkovskaya could have lived in Manhattan, Palo Alto, or Santa Monica, with a car service waiting downstairs to whisk her away to expound on Russia's corruptions and treacheries from the safe confines of a television studio or college campus. She would have risked leaving her mother, who's battling cancer, and her 26-year-old daughter and first grandchild. But she would be alive. Surely what they would have preferred. Family and friends had urged her to leave. Russian soldiers, police, oligarchs, criminal gangs, and the highest-ranking Russian politicians had explicitly threatened her life. When she grew violently ill after sipping a cup of tea on a flight into Beslan to negotiate during the school hostage crisis in 2004, she saw it was an attempt to silence her there and then. Alexander Litvinenko, the former KGB man who became a critic of Vladimir Putin, told her to leave Russia. But Anna told David Harst of Britain's The Guardian newspaper in 2002, quote, The more I think about it, the more I would be betraying these people if I walked away. The only thing to do is to take this to the bitter end, so that no one can say that when things became difficult, I ran away. End quote. Those words would sound sanctimonious from almost anyone else. As the daughter of Soviet diplomats, Anna grew up with books, magazines, and access to news that was banned for ordinary citizens. In fact, her parents, impressed by the, by the free flow of ideas in the West, smuggled books in for her. When she studied journalism at Moscow State University, she risked writing her dissertation about the poet Marina Tsvetaeva, who had been banned by Stalin and eventually hanged herself. She went to work for Izvestia, the official house organ of the Supreme Soviet Central Committee. Pravda, the other best-known official daily, but in no sense a competitor, was the official voice of the Communist Party. Pravda means the truth. Izvestia means the news. And the joke among Russians was, there is no news in Pravda and no truth in Izvestia. Within a few years, Anna was able to meet the criteria for a job at the in-house magazine of Aeroflot, the state airline of the USSR. The journalism was probably trickier than what Americans associate with airline monthlies, creating a favorable impression of the grimy and treacherous Aeroflot fleet in the early 1980s would have tested Dostoevsky's imagination even. But she also qualified for free plane tickets which she used to explore the breadth of her own vast, dazzling country. She fell in love with the majestic immensity of Russia's variety and soul. She was appalled by the depth of its poverty and cruelty. When the era of Mikhail Gorbachev's perestroika began to bloom, Anna saw opportunities to do the kind of journalism she had known in the West. She became part of the founding group of Novaya Gazeta, the new newspaper. It was that newspaper that first sent her to Chechnya, where she would return 39 times. At the heart of these journals is the anger and revulsion Anna Polyutkovskaya felt over what she witnessed there, over and over, and what that brutality disclosed about the system that ruled her country. Americans may see the Russian war in Chechnya as a prolonged conflict, stretching over for more, for more than a decade like the Soviet campaign in Afghanistan, 
نهار امريكا زول فيتنام But for Russians, there are two distinct wars. The first was declared by Boris Yeltsin after local leaders split the, split the Chechen English Republic in two as the Soviet Union spun apart in 1981. Ingushetia joined the Russian Federation. Chechnya refused. Russian forces rolled in to Chechnya in 1984, just like in Czechoslovakia in 1968, one is to decide. When Russia said that instability and civil war threatened the peace in the region. But by 1996, the ill-equipped Russian army, which rained down expensive explosives on Chechens but could not feed or shoot its soldiers, had to withdraw. Russian public opinion, appalled by the uselessness, cost, and visible brutality of the war, called on Yeltsin to sue for peace. Many of his government openly blamed the press for informing and inflaming the public. Anna Politkovskaya was prominent among those reporters who sent back vivid and infuriating stories of Russia's scorched earth campaign of kidnappings, rapes, massacres, and the bombing of innocents. If such coverage caused the public to shut down the war in Chechnya, Anna believed it was an example of what a free press and an informed public in a democratic society should have the power to do. Anna Polyutkovskaya strongly believed that Vladimir Putin and Russian security services had allowed the self-proclaimed Chechen terrorist Samil, Shamil Basayev to stage raids in Dagestan in 1999. This permitted Vladimir Putin to cite chaos and instability as a reason to send Russian forces back into Chechnya. I am less certain of that, and will leave Anna to make her own argument in these journals, but Putin had manifestly drawn lessons from the first failed Russian campaign in Chechnya. Keep out the reporters and have no mercy. The killings, rapes, indiscriminate shellings and torture of Chechens became more intense and went almost unreported. In October 2002, heavily armed terrorists professing allegiance to Chechen separatists, uh, Shamil Basayev claimed credit for the plan, seized the Dubrovka Theater in Moscow during a performance of Nord-Ost, a Russian musical. They took 912 people hostage. The terrorists said that all the captured theatergoers would be killed unless the Russian government withdrew its forces from Chechnya. Anna Polyutkovskaya, whose reporting from Chechnya had made, her na- had made her name known among the terrorists, was called in to try to negotiate some kind of agreement that would save the lives of the hostages. No agreement was reached. The Russian government quickly concluded, if it had ever thought otherwise, that none was possible. After just two and a half days, Russian special forces stormed the building. But first, they laid down a cloud of what is still an unidentified gas. 33 terrorists were killed. Some might have escaped. But so were at least 130 of the hostages. No Russian special forces died. Important questions persist. How did any of the hostages die when a gas was laid down to render their captures unconscious? Why was there no medical assistance on site for the hostages? Why were terrorists shocked if they were stunned and inert? Was there something that government forces didn't want anyone to have the chance to say? Anna Polyutkovskaya came away convinced that the terrorists, and she called them that, no stylebook euphemisms for Anna, like militants or activists, no, she just called them terrorists. She came away convinced that these people would have never killed the hostages and that the Russian government never would have permitted a peaceful solution. It wanted to shed blood. 
I am less sure of the former than I am of the latter. She was there, I was not, and I honor her experience and judgment. I just am not convinced that the kind of people who use guns to capture innocents in the first in the first act wouldn't use them to kill uh, them to kill before the certain the, the curtain fell. From my own experience, I can imagine gasping, coughing, terrorists shooting hostages as they grasp that Russian special forces are preparing to storm in. But, indisputably, the Russian government used the siege to squelch the last groups of a free and independent press. It closed one television station during the siege and censored radio and television coverage. Then the Putin government used the siege to persuade the lower house of the Duma to pass broad, blunt new restrictions on what the press can report and how. And the Duma pointedly refused to form a commission to investigate the government's handling of the theater siege. Questions about how and why the gas was used and the effect inside will never be fully explored. Anna Sobasayev is the almost predictable creation of the savagery of Russia's assault on Chechnya. In fact, a Russian air attack on Basayev's hometown of Dushnevedeno in 1995 had killed 11 members of his family, including his wife and children. But I cringe at seeing this as any grounds for the siege of the school in Beslan, for which Besaev also claimed credit with no apparent regret. More than 344 civilians were slaughtered, including 186 schoolchildren. During all this period, Anna was angry at America and Western Europe, which continued to support Vladimir Putin. She did not expect or want the West to sally forth. She had already had enough Western so-called help. Thank you, and said, quote, Those in Russia who hope for help from the West need finally to recognize that winning back our democratic freedoms is up to us. But she was aghast when the West turned a blind eye towards Putin's crushing of Chechnya, his stranglehold on power and his suppression of opposition just as it had once overlooked Stalin's starvations, hangings, gulags and massacres. The sad truth is that a lot of Western democracies like dealing with dictators. Tyrants can be tidy and reliable business partners, you know. She also became frustrated with opponents of Putin's rule, almost as much as she was with Putin's own regime, and the criminal gangs and oligarchs who ran wild with his indulgence. She thought that the tyrants and the thieves had no consciousness, while the reformers were elitists with little conviction or courage for confrontation. Quote, Our society isn't a society anymore, she wrote. It is a collection of windowless, isolated, concrete cells. The authorities do everything they can to make the cells even more impenetrable. Showing dissent, inciting some against others, dividing and ruling, and the people fall for it. That is the real problem. That is why revolution in Russia, when it comes, is always so extreme. The barrier between the cells collapses only when the negative emotions within them are ungovernable. End quote. And to be sure, in some of her lowest moments, some of them revealed in this book, Anna Polyutkovskaya wondered if Russians really wanted a free press or a free country. And indeed, a 2005 poll conducted by the All-Russian Public Opinion Research Center showed that 82% of the public wanted censorship. That figure might have represented the great number of Russians who were aghast at the coarse sex and violence that has become common on television in particular, but it certainly gives the government popular support for laws that stifle the press and political opposition. And uh, this is from me, not from the prologue. Remember that it's gone even further than that. Remember that right now you have 
strict laws which forbid uh, offending <laughs> offending anything that the orthodox people might feel or that any blog uh, or any other new media outlet that has at least 3,000 supporters is considered a mass media and has to report and be personally responsible for what attracts. And also remember that I am blacklisted by Russia and that I also have been receiving death threats a lot. But that's something to think upon in the future and why this is extremely important for me. But let's continue on with the prologue. There's still a bit to go. At about that time, Anna wrote approvingly of a group of people who organized a series of hunger strikes. Quote, There is much you can no longer say, but you can still go on a hunger strike to show that you have been silenced. Sounding off at protest meetings has become virtually useless. Mere preaching to the converted. Those who share your views already know the situation, so why keep telling them about it? Standing in picket lines is pointless unless it is to solve your own consciousness. At least you'll be able to tell your granddaughter that you did more than when you're spleen in your own kitchen. Even writing books that don't get published in Russia because they are off-message doesn't have much impact. They are read only by people living abroad. End quote. By the way, this writing on the Polyutkovskaya's A Russian Diary isn't being published in Russia. And this was written in 2006, I presume, maybe 2007. It is 2016 as I read you this prologue, as I'm about to tell you about all, tell you all about this book that you might probably have never heard of. <laughs> one of the most one of the most important books that you might probably have never heard of, and that might change the way of you thinking about Putin's Putin's government. Now I want to say that I have nothing against Russian people. No, Alexei is a Russian person as well. There are some things you should know about Putin's Russia, about how things are going on there. And still in 2016, nothing has changed. We have had Sochi Olympic Games. We have had Crimean annexation. We have had a many important things going on. A Russian diary isn't being published in Russia. On the day that Anna Polyutkovskaya was shot to death, October 7, 2006, in the elevator of her apartment block on Lenskaya Street, the editor of Novaya Gazeta says that she was about to file a long story on torture, as it is routinely conducted by Chechen security forces supported by Russia. That story will almost certainly never be read by anyone, inside or outside Russia. Even the substance of it will probably never be known. Russian police seized her notes, her computer, hard drive, and photographs of two people she would reportedly accuse of torture. It is dangerous to be a real journalist in Russia today. A con con conscientious Russian journalist, unlike reporters in North America or Western Europe, doesn't have to travel into war zones to risk his or her life. Danger comes to his or her doorstep, car, or apartment block. The Glasnost, the Glasnost Defense Foundation, led by Alexei Simonov on the Moscow Helsinki Group, reported during 2005 alone, six Russian journalists were murdered, 63 were assaulted, 47 were arrested, and 42 were prosecuted. The editorial offices of 12 publications or broadcasters were attacked. 23 editorial offices were closed. 10 were evicted from their premises. 28 newspapers or magazines were confiscated outright. 38 times the government simply refused to let material be printed or distributed. 13 Russian journalists have been killed in Russia, not Chechnya, Iraq or Afghanistan since Vladimir Putin came to power in 2000. And another, and another note from myself as I finish this prologue is that I might be one of them in the future and not even Russian.
this is why you, I think, should listen to this book. And uh, thank you for supporting me so far. And I'm going to give you this book. And it's very important. It's hard for me because I'm, I'm a journalist just like Miss Politkovska. And I'm reading you this. And, and you know, this, this book, this audio book, this whole show might just end at one point because... I might be no longer there. Then again, does it really matter? The ideas that I'm giving you, the stories, the truth, it's in the air. I appreciate this chance of telling you my stories, and I hope you appreciate the fact that I am telling you. Because it will be hard to find someone else who will. Anyway, this is getting a bit emotional, so I'll just continue on with the prologue. Any American journalist who reads Anna Politkovskaya's journals should find it difficult to accept with a straight face the awards we give one another that laud us for being bold or courageous. I've probably had a fairly typical career for a reporter who has covered conflicts. I've had to duck sniper fire, been shaken by bombs, and once spent two anxious days locked in a room by teenage Palestinian kids who said they didn't trust Jews and wanted the tapes of my interviews. I've been called a communist by fascists and a CIA agent by communists, and I've been not too cleverly or subtly threatened. But as a member of the but as a member of the Corleone or Soprano family once said, this is the business we've chosen. Yet after reading a Russian diary, I hope I always shrink from the arrogance to compare any challenges I face to those of a conscientious Russian journalist. If the President of the United States, Bill Gates, the CEO of Exxon, or the head of the Chicago mob doesn't like one of my stories, he has the power to crush a pen in his hand and write a really strong letter. The likes of Seymour Hirsch, Nina Totenberg, and Ryan Ross would be in prison in today's Russia, or driving cabs for their own protection. When American reporters challenge the government or corporate line on the story and spotlight abuse, deceit, greed, crimes and conflicts of interest, they can wind up on All Things Considered, The Daily Show, and The Best Seller List. They bring home trophies, get good tables and restaurants, and are given fellowships. If Anna Politkovsky had the courage to attempt so much with so little, how can those of us who are reporters in the unsurpassed freedom of America demand anything less of ourselves? A Russian diary is not a personal memoir in the way Americans have come to expect. Readers will discover little here of Adna Politkovskaya's personal life. There is little visible even between the lines of the strain of Anna's career or her fa- on her family or the special challenge of being a woman in a war zone. Uh, she would have been hard to book on Oprah Winfrey. She does not tell self-serving anecdotes about her colleagues. She rarely shares the gritty details of how she was able to dig up a hole or uncover a story. There are no entries of the kind that say, had coffee with a pleasant young woman named Jolie at the Satsita refugee camp in Ingushetia, and she said, no, no, no. She rarely speaks of being scared, except for her country. Of course, Anna had a personal life. She had two children and was about to become a grandmother. Her sister, Yelena Kudminova, told me in the letter, Anna never thought about being remembered, because as a normal human being, Less than 50 years old, she was looking forward to living, especially inspired by the fact that she would have, have been a grandmother soon. 
She was considered a caring friend, and friends have told the story that once she returned home to Moscow from Grozny, where she had reported on a Russian rocket attack that killed scores of people, including babies, new mothers and grandmothers, in a market and a maternity hospital, only to find her husband packing up to move out of their apartment. I can't take this anymore, he was supposed to have said, which might sound more sympathetic the second or third time you hear it. I don't think what Westerners might call Anna Politkovskaya's work which wasn't ambition for money, notoriety or advancement, but the struggle for the survival of her country. That was more important to her than her family. Anna heard a tricking clock winding down on a box of dynamite in a darkened room. She could see no good life for her family or anyone's family unless the country that she loved could pull back from its fall into despotism and cruelty. As a patriot and a parent, Anna Politkovsky gave her life to try to prevent that. Quote, people often tell me I am a pessimist, that I do not believe in the strength of the Russian people, that I am obsessive in my opposition to Putin and I see nothing beyond that, she wrote. I see everything and that is the whole problem. I see both what is good and what is bad. By 2016, many of my generation may no longer be around, but our children will be alive as will our grandchildren. Do we really not care what kind of life they will have or even whether they will have a life at all? And this is the year 2016. Then many of her generation are gone. That is why I want to tell you this story. Anyway, this prologue was written in March 1, 2007. And this was what Mr. Scott Simon wrote about this book. The other parts of this will be available for patrons. And like I said, uh, part one is already up on patreon.com next episode is PDRP our interview with Stephanie Elaine Hunt a black woman from New York who's a leader of her own local drinking liberally group and I shall be confronting her about liberal ideals and discussing Trump with her both the negative sides and the positive ones and I wanted someone who really might suffer from Trump, focus on the positive sides. But I will know, I will not leave any stone unturned. Everything has to be analyzed as it is, according to the facts, not based on ideologies. So I'll try to do that one. До свидания, товарищи!